Section 40 of The Wit and Humor of America, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joyce Couch. Sethi and Sally by John Luther Long. The place was the porch of the store. The time was about ten o'clock in the morning of a summer day. The people were the amiable loafers and old Baumgartner. The person he was discoursing about was his son, Zephaniah. I am not sure that that name was not the ripe fruit of his father's fancy, with perhaps the scriptural suggestion, which is likely to be present in the affairs of a Pennsylvania German, whether communicant or not, even if he live in Maryland. Yas, always last, especially at funerals and weddings, except his own. He's sure to be on time at his own funeral, right out in front, huh? But sometimes he misses his wedding. Why, I know the feller. Yous all knows him, begoshins. That didn't get there till another feller married her, bout a more'n a year afterward. Wasn't it more'n a year, boys? Yas, Bill Eisenkraut. Or, no, was it his brother, Balser Iron Cabbage? Seems to me now it was false. Some sing with a bee at the front end, anyhow. Henry Wasserman diffidently intimated that there was a curious but satisfactory element of safety in being last, a fashtnach, in their language, in fact. Those in front were the ones usually hurt in railroad accidents, Alexander Althoff remembered. Safe, cried the speaker. Of course, and for why, say for why. Old Baumgartner challenged defiantly. No one answered, and he let several impressive minutes intervene. You don't know, hang you, none of you knows. Well, well, because he ain't there when any sing occurs, always a little late. They agreed with him by a series of sage nods. But, fellers, the worst is about the courting. It's no way to always be late. Everybody else gets there first, and it's nossing for the night, but weeping, wailing, and the gnashing of teeth. Aunt, maybe the other fellow gets considerable happiness and a good farm. There was complaint in the old man's voice, and they knew that he met his own son, Seffi. To add to their embarrassment, this same son was now appearing over Luchchit Hill, an opportune moment for a pleasing digression. For you must be told early, considering old Baumgartner's longing for certain lands, tenements, and hereditaments, using his own phrase, which were not his own, but which adjoined his. It had passed into a proverb of the visitage. Indeed, though the property in question belonged to one's Sarah Pressel, it was known colloquially as Baumgartner's yearn. And the reason of it was this. Between his own farm and the public road, and the railroad station when it came, lay the fairest metal land farmer's eye had ever rested upon. I am speaking again for the father of Seffi, and with his hyperbole. Save in one particular, it was like an enemy's beautiful territory, lying between one's less beautiful own and the open sea, keeping one a poor inlander whose crops must either pass across the land of his adversary and pay tithes to him, or go by long distances around him at the cost of greater ties to the soulless owners of the turnpikes, 
who aggravatingly fix a gate each way to make their ties more sure. So, I say, it was like having the territory of his enemy lying between him and the deep water, save, as I've also said, in one particular, to wit, that the owner, Sarah Pressel, that I've mentioned, was not old Baumgartner's enemy. In fact, they were tremendous friends, and it was by this friendship, and one other thing which I mean to mention later, that old Baumgartner hoped, before he died, to attain the wish of his life, and see not only the Elysian pasture field, but the whole of the adjoining farm, with the line fences down, a part of his. The other thing I promised to mention, as an aid to this ambition, was Seffy. And since the said Sarah was nearly of the same age as Seffy, perhaps I need not explain further, except to say that the only obstruction the old man could see now to acquiring the title by marriage was Seffy himself. He was, and always had been, afraid of girls, especially aggressive, flirtatious, pretty and tempestuous girls as this Sarah. These things, however, were hereditary with the girl. It was historical, in fact, that during the life of Sarah's good-looking father, so importunate had old Baumgartner been for the purchase of at least the meadow, he could not have ventured more than that at the time, and so obstinate had been the father of the present owner, he had red hair precisely as his daughter had, that they had come to blows about it, to the discomfiture of old Baumgartner, and afterwards they did not speak. Yet, when the loafers at the store laughed, Baumgartner swore that he would, nevertheless, have that pasture before he died. But then, as if fate too were against him, the railroad was built, and the station was placed so that the Pressel farm lay directly between it and him. And, of course, the life went more and more in the direction of the station, left him more and more out of it, and made him poorer and poorer, and Pressel richer and richer. And when the store laughed at that, Baumgartner swore that he would possess half the farm before he died, and as Pressel and his wife died, and Seffy grew up, and as he noticed the fondness of the little red-headed girl for his little tow-headed boy, he added to his adjuration that he would be harrowing that whole farm before he died, without paying a cent for it. But both Seffy and Sally had grown to a marriageable age, without anything happening. Seffy had become inordinately shy, why the coquettish Sally had accepted the attentions of Sam Pritz, the clerk of the store, as an antagonist more worthy of her, and in a fashion which sometimes made the father Seffy swear and lose his temper with Seffy. Though, of course, in the final disposition of the matter, he was sure that no girl so nice as Sally would marry such a person as Sam Pritz with no extremely visible means of support. A salary of four dollars a week, and an odious reputation for liquor. And it was for these things, all of which were known, for Baumgartner had not a single secret, that the company at the store detected the personal equation in old Baumgartner's communications. Sethi had almost arrived by this time, and Sally was in the store, with Sam. The situation was highly dramatic. But the old man consummately ignored this complication and directed attention to his son. For him, the molasses tapper did not exist. The fact is, he was overjoyed. Suffy, for once on his life, would be on time. He would do the rest. Now, boys, 
just look at them. Dogged if they ain't both like one another. How's the proper birds of a feather flock with one another? I don't know. Anyhow, Seth flocks with bits constant, and they understand one another good. Trotting like a sideways dog on a hot summer's day. And he showed the company up and down the store porch just how a sideways dog would be likely to trot on a hot summer's day and then laugh joyously. If there had been an artist's eye to see, they would have been well worth its while, Sethy and the mare so affectionately disparaged. And, after all, I am not sure that the speaker himself had not an artist's eye, for a spring pasture or a fallow upland, or a drove of goodly cows deep in his clover, I know he had. Perhaps you too have? And this was his best mare and his only son. The big bay, clad in broad-banded harness, soft with oil and glittering with brasses, was shambling indolently down the hill, resisting her own momentum, by the diagonal motion the old man had likened to a dog's sideways trot. The loop trace chains were jingling a merry dithy ramp. Her head was nodding, her tail swaying, propped by his elbow on her broad back, one leg swung between the hames, the other one, keeping time on her ribs, was singing, I want to be an angel, and with the angels stand, a crown upon my forehead, a harp within my hand. I wonder what kind of angel he'd make anyhow, and bets they'd have to go together. Say, I wonder if it is horse angels. No one knew. No one offered a suggestion. Well, it ought to be. Say, he can perform circus with old bets. They expressed their polite surprise at this for perhaps the hundredth time. Yes, they have a kind of circus ring in the backyard. He stands on one foot, then another, and on his hands with his feet kicking. And then he says words like hokey-pokey. And Bets, she kicks up behind and throws him off in the dung, and we all laugh. Happy ever after. Bets, most of all. After the applause, he said, I guess I better wink him up. What you think? They one and all thought he had. They knew he would do it, no matter what they thought. His method, as usual, was his own. He stepped to the adjoining field, and selecting a clod with the steely polish of the plowshare upon it, threw it at the mare. It struck her on the flank. She gathered her feet under her in sudden alarm, then slowly relaxed, looked slyly for the old man, found him, and, understanding, suddenly wheeled and ambled off home, leaving Seffy prone on the ground as her part of the joke. The old man brought Seffy in triumph to the store porch. Just stopped here before you got to be an angel, he was saying. We couldn't bear to think about you being an angel, and with the angel stand, a harp upon your forehead, a crown within your hand, I expect, when it's corn planting time. Seffy grinned cheerfully, brushed off the dust, and contemplated his father's watch, held accusingly against him. Old Baumgartner went on gailing. About a half an inch past ten. Seffy, I'm glad you ain't breaking your reputation for being Vashnachich. Just about a quarter of an inch too late for the prize with a flower on its hair and arms and its frock pimmed up to show its new petticoat. Woo-hoo! If I had such a nice petticoat, he imitated the lady in question, to the delight of the gentle loafers. Seffy stared a little and rubbed some dust out of his eyes. He was pleasant, but dull. Yes, sir, Seth, if you'd got her an inch and a quarter past. 
Now Sam's got her down in the cellar a lickin' molasses together. Doggone as Sam don't get everything, except his two bills. He don't want to be no unshell till he dies. He's got fun enough here. But, Seffy, you're like the flow of molasses in January at courting. This oblique suasion made no impression on Seffy. It was doubtful if he understood it at all. The loafers began to smile. One laughed. The old man checked him with a threat of personal harm. Hold on there, Jefferson Davis Busby, he chid. I don't allow no one to laugh at my sippy, except just me. I can't I'm his daddy. That's a fight word the next time you do it. Mr. Busby straightened his countenance. He doesn't seem to notice nor care about girls, does he? No one spoke. No, darn him, he ain't no good. Say, what you give for him, huh? Here he goes to the highest bidder. For richer, for poorer, for better, or worser. Up and down, in and out, swing your partners, what's the bid? He can plough as crooked as a mule's hind leg, sleep hard as a possum in the winter time, eat like a snake, get left every time, but he can catch fish. They wait on him. What's bid? No one would hazard a bid. Yet a minute, shouted the old fellow, pulling out his bullseye watch again. What's bid? Going, going, all done, going. A dollar. The bid came from behind him, and the voice was beautiful to hear. A gleam came into the old man's eyes as he heard it. He deliberately put the watch back in its pocket, put on his spectacles, and turned as if she were a stranger. Gone, he announced then. Who's the purchaser? Come forwards and take your property. What's the name, please? Many pretended to recognize her. Oh, Sally, well, that's lucky. He goes in good hands. He's sound and kind, but needs the whip. He held out his hand for the dollar. It was the girl of whom he had spoken accurately as a prize. Her sleeves were turned up as far as they would go, revealing some soft lace-trimmed whiteness, and there was flour on her arms. Some patches of it on her face gave a petal-like effect to her otherwise aggressive color. The pretty dress was pinned far enough back to reveal the prettier petticoat, plus a pair of trimly clad ankles. Perhaps these are neither the garments nor the airs in which every farmer maiden did her baking. But then Sally was no ordinary farmer maiden. She was all this, it is true. But she was, besides, grace and color and charm itself. And if she chose to bake in such an attire, or even if she chose to pretend to do so, where was the churl to say her nay, even though the flower was part of a deliberate makeup? Certainly he was not at the store that summer morning. And Seffy was there. Her hair escaped redness by only a little, but that little was just the difference between ugliness and beauty. For whether Sally were beautiful or not, about which we might contend a bit, her hair was, and perhaps that is the reason why it is nearly always uncovered, or possibly, again, because it is so much uncovered was the reason it was beautiful. It seemed to catch some of the glory of the sun. Her face had a few freckles and her mouth was a trifle too large, but in it were splendid teeth. In short, by the magic of brilliant color and natural grace, she narrowly escaped being extremely handsome, in the way of a sunburned peach or a maiden's blush apple. 
and even if you should think she were not handsome, you would admit that there was an indescribable rustic charm about her. She was like the aroma of the hayfields, or the woods, or a field of daisies, or dandelions. The girl, laughing, surrendered the money, and the old man, taking an arm of each, marched them peremptorily away. Come to the house and get its clothes. Everything goes in. Stuff by pat, butterfly necktie, diamond pen, toothbrush, hair oil, razor, and soap. They had got far enough around the corner to be outside of the store during this gaiety, and the old man now shoved Seffy and the girl out in front of him, linked their arms, and retreated to the rear. What Sephaniah P. Baumgartner Sr. hath gin together? Let nobody put a thunder. Be goshens, he announced. The proceeding appeared to be painful to Seffy, but not to Sally. She frankly accepted the situation and promptly put into action its opportunities for coquetry. She begged him, first, with consummate aplomb, to aid her in adjusting her parcels more securely, insisting upon carrying them herself, and it would be impossible to describe adequately her allures. The electrical touches, half-caress, half-defiance, the confidential whisperings, so that the wily old man in the rear might not hear, the surges up against him, the recoveries, only to surge again. These would require a mechanical contrivance, which reports not only speech but action, and even this might easily fail, so subtle was it all. Seth Seffy, I thought it was his old watch he was auctioning off. I wanted it for, for a nest egg. <laughs> you must excuse me. You wouldn't have bet at all if you knowed it was me, I reckon, said Seffy. Yes, I would, declared the coquette. I'd rather have you than any nest egg in the whole world. Any two of them. And when he did not take his chance, if they were made of gold. But then she spoiled it. It's worse fellows than you, Seffy. The touch of coquetry was but too apparent. And better, said Seffy with a lump in his throat. I know I ain't no good with girls, and I don't care. Yes, she extended wickedly. There are better ones. Sam Pris. Sally looked away, smiled, and was silenced. Sulky, Seffy, she finally said. If he does stink of salt mackerel and almost always drunk, Seffy went on bitterly, he's nothing but a molasses tapper. Sally began to drift farther away and to sing. Calling Pris names was of no consequence, except it kept Seffy from making love to her while he was doing it, which seemed foolish to Sally. The old man came up and brought them together again. Och, go long and make love some more. I like to see it. I expect I'm an old fool, but I like to see it. It's like old times, yes. If you don't look out there, Seffy, I'll take a hand myself, yes, sir. Go long. He drew them very close, each looking the other way. Indeed, he held them there for a moment, roughly. Seffy stole a glance at Sally. He wanted to see how she was taking his father's odiously intimate suggestion. But it happened that Sally wanted to see how he was taking it. She laughed with the frankest of joy when their eyes met. Seffy, I do like you, said the coquette, and you ought to know it, you imp. Now this was immensely stimulating to the bashful Seffy. I like you, he said, ever since we were babies. Seff! I don't believe you, or you wouldn't waste your time so, 
about Sam Pritz. Er, Sally, where are you going tonight? Seffy met to prove himself, and Sally answered with a little fright at the sudden aggressiveness she had procured. Nowhere said I know of. Well, may I set up with you? The pea-green sunbonnet could not conceal the utter amazement and then the radiance which shot into Sally's face. Set up with me? Yes, said Sevy almost savagely. That's what I said. Oh, I, I guess so. Yes, of course, she answered variously and rushed off home. You know I own you, she laughed back, as if she had not been sufficiently explicit. I paid for you. Your pappy's got the money. I'll expect my property tonight. Yes, shouted the happy old man, and be goshens. It's a regular bargain, ain't it, Seffy? You her property, real estate, her regiments and tenements. And even Seffy was drawn into the joyous, laughing conceit of it. Had he not just done the bravest thing of his small life? Yes, he cried after fascinating Sally, for sure and certain tonight. It's a bargain, cried she. For better or worser, richer or poorer, up and down and in and out, chasses, right and left. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, but Seffy. And the happy father turned to the happy son and hugged him. Don't you ever forget. She's a featherhead and got a bright red temper like her daddy. And they work mighty bad together sometimes. When you get her in the right place once, we'll nail her down hand and foot so she can't get away. When she gets mad, her little brain evaporates, and if she had a knife, she'd go round stabbing her best friends. That's the only thing that saves her. Yes, and us, no knife. If she had a knife, it would be funerals following her all the time. They advanced together now, Seffy's father whistling some tune that had never been heard before on earth, and with his arm in that of his son, they watched Sally bounding away. Once more she leaped a fence, she looked laughingly back. The old man whistled wildly out of tune. Seffy waved a hand. Now you shoutin', Seffy, shout again. I didn't say a word. Well, it ain't too late. Go on. Now Seffy understood and laughed with his father. Nice gal, Seff Seffy. Yes, admitted Seffy with reserve. Healthy. Seffy agreed to this also. No, Dr. Bills, his father amplified. Seffy said nothing. Entire orphan. She's got a granny. Yes, chuckled old man at the way his son was drifting into the situation, thinking about granny. But Sally owns the farm. Ooh-hoo, said Seffy, whatever that might mean. And Sally's the boss. Silence. And Granny won't object to anybody Sally marries anyhow. She doesn't. She'd get licked. Who said anything about marrying? Seffy was speciously savage now, as any successful wooer might be. Nobody but me, thank you, said the old man with equally specious weakness. Look how she can jump a six-rail fence like a three-year-old filly. She's a nice gal, Seffy, and the farms joined together. Her pasturefield and our cornfield. And she's kissing her hand backwards. Not me or you, Seffy. Seffy said he didn't know. 
and he did not return the kiss, though he yearned to. Well, I bet a dollar that the first initial of his last name is Sephaniah P. Baumgartner, Jr. Well, said Sephi, with a great flourish, I'm going to set up with her tonight. Oh, get out, Seph, though he knew it. You'll see. No, I won't, said his father. I wouldn't be so darn mean. No, sir. Seppy grinned at the subtle foolery, and his courage continued to grow. I am going to wear my high hat, he announced, with his nose quite in the air. No, Seph, said the old man with a wonderful inflection, facing him about that he might look into his determined face. For it must be explained that the stovepipe hat in that day in that country was dedicated only to the most momentous social occasions, and that, consequently, gentlemen wore it to go courting. Yes, declared Seffy again. Bring forth the stovepipe, the stovepipe, the stovepipe, chanted Seffy's frivolous father in the way of the anvil chorus. And my butterfly necktie with... Is it diamond on? whispered his father. They laughed in confidence of their secret. Seffy, the successful wooer, was thawing out again. The diamond was not a diamond at all. The Hebrew who sold it to Seffy had confessed as much, but he also swore that if it were kept in perfect polish, no one but a diamond merchant could tell the difference. Therefore, there being no diamond merchant anywhere near, and the jewel being always immaculate, Seffy presented it as a diamond and had risen perceptibly in the opinion of the vicinage. And, and, Seph, Seffy, what you going to do? Do? Seffy had been absorbed in what he was going to wear. Yas, yas, that's the most important. He encircled Seffy's waist and gently squeezed it. Oh, of course. Ha, but what yet? I regret that Seffy did not understand. Seffy, he said impressively, you have told me what you're going to wear. It ain't much. The weather's yet pretty cold nights. But I can stand it if you can. God knows about Sally. Now what you're going to do? That's the conotron I asked you. Still, it was not clear to Seffy. What, why, what I'm going to do, huh? Why, whatever occurs. Gosh almighty, and never say a word or do a thing to help the occurrences along. Goshens, what a setting up. Why, say, Seff, Seffy, what you set up for? Seffy did not exactly know. He had never hoped to practice the thing in that sublimely militant phase. What do you think? Why, Seth, plow straight to her heart. I wished I had your chance. I'd show ya other guess kind of setting up ya, sir. Make your mouth water and your head swim, becotions. Why, that Sally's like a young stubblefield. Got to be worked constant and plowed deep and manured heavy. And me be drained with blind ditches and crops changed constant and kept a going that away constant, constant, so the weeds can't get in her. Then you can put her in wheat after a while and get your money back. This drastic metaphor had its effect. Seffy began to understand. He said so. Now look here, Seffy, his father went on more softly. When you get to this, and this, and this, he went through his pantomime again, and it included a progressive caressing to the kissing point. 
Well, just when you boast comfortable, huh? Maybe on one chair? What I know. It's been so long since I done it myself. When's you boast comfortable, asked her, just asked her, <clears throat> what she'll take for the pasture field. She owns you both, and she can't use both you and the pasture. A bird in the hand is worth several in another's fellas, not so. But Steffi only stopped and stared at his father. This again he did not understand. You know I've got no money to buy the pasture field, said he. Gosh almighty, said the man joyfully, making as if he would strike Steffi with his huge fist, a thing he did often. And ain't got nothing to trade? Nothing except the mare, said the boy. Say, ain't you got no feelings, you idiot? Oh, said Seffy, and then, but what's feelings got to do with cow pasture? Och, no wonder he wants to be an angel, and wish the angel stand, holding things in his hands and on his head. He's too good for this vile world. He'd linger shiffering on the brink, and fear to launch away into all his darn life, as someone didn't push him in. So here goes. This was spoken to the skies, apparently, and now he turned to his son again. Look a year, you dumber ox. Feelings is the same to gals like Sally as money is to you and me. You can buy potatoes with them. Do you understand? Sethy said that he did now. Well, then, I've tried to buy that pasture field a thousand times. Sethy started. Yes, that's a little bit alive. Maybe a dozen times. And at last, Sally's daddy said he'd lick me if I ever said pasture field again. And I said it again, and he licked me. He was a big man, and, and red-headed yet, like Sally. Now, look a year, you can get that pasture field without money. Except you damn feelings, which ain't no other use. Sally won't lick you, if she is bigger. Don't be a scared. You got tons of feeling in you, you ain't got no other use for don't waste em. They're good green money, and we'll get even with Sally's dad for licking me yet, and something on the side, huh? At last it was evident that Seffy fully understood, and his father broke into that discordant whistle once more. A gal that can jump a six-rail fence, and without no running start, don't let her get a past you. Well, I'm going to set up with her tonight, said Seffy again with a huge ahem and the tune his father whistled as he opened the door for him sounded something like, I want to be an angel. But not to buy pasture land, mourned Seffy. Oh, no, of course not, agreed his wily old father. That's just one of my darn jokes. I expect I'll take the fence down tomorrow. Say, Seff, you just married the girl. I'll take care of the fence. It took Seffy a long time to array himself as he had threatened. And when it was all done, you wouldn't have cared to know him, for his fine yellow hair was changed to an ugly brown by the patent hair oil with which he had dressed it, and you would not have liked its fragrance, I trust. Bergamot, I think it was. His fine young throat was garroted within a starched standing collar. His feet were pinched in creaking boots, his hands close gauntleted in buckskin gloves, and he, altogether, incomparable, uncomfortable, and triumphant. Downstairs, his father paced the floor, watch in hand. From time to time, he would call out the hour, like a watchman on a minaret. 
at last. Look a year, Seffy. It's two inches a past seven. And by the time you get there, say never get another fella a chance to get there afore you or to leave after you. Seffy descended at that moment with his hat poised in his left hand. His father dropped his watch and picked it up. Both stood at gaze for a moment. Sonder, Seth, you're as beautiful as the sun, moon, and stars, and as kinky as several apothecary shops. Yer, take the watch and get along, so you have some time with you. Now get along. You late already, cautions. You was behind the time when you was born. Yes, your mummy was disappointed in you right at first. You was seventy-six hours late. But now you is formed. Thank God. I always knowed it was a cure for it, but I didn't know it was anything as nice as Seffy. Seffy issued forth to his first conquest, lighted as far as the front gate by the fat lamp held in his father's hand. Oh, Seth, Seffy, shall I set up for you till you get home? He called into the dark. No, shouted Seffy. <laughs> that sounds right. Don't you forget, when you both were comfortable. <laughs> Maybe one share. <laughs> then we both take the fence down tomorrow. Maybe all three. End of Seffy and Sally.